Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. This episode explores the Windrush scandal and how a large number of black Britons who had lived and worked in Britain for decades were threatened with deportation because they didn't appear to have the right papers. The original webinar was hosted in partnership with the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Good evening and welcome to a webinar on the Windrush scandal. If there's ever been a webinar for a time like this, I think this is it. So we welcome you warmly to this time together. Um, and I promise you, you're in for a real treat. A little bit of housekeeping. If you wish to submit questions to the speaker, um, I invite you to do so via the Q&A button if you're um, with us via Zoom um, and through Facebook, through the usual channels on Facebook. And we will try to get through as many of the questions as possible. Um, no promises, but we will make our best effort. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you Patrick Vernon, OBE, who is a social commentator, campaigner and cultural historian. He has over 20 years senior experience working across mental health, public health, heritage, race equality, and is well known in health, local government, and the voluntary sector. In 2018, he kickstarted the campaign for an amnesty for Windrush Generation. Patrick is currently Associate Director for Connected Communities at the Centre for Aging Better. Equality and Diversity Advisor to Lambeth Council, Chair of Citizens Partnership for Healthcare Investigation Branch, and Senior Associate at OLMEC, I hope I've got that right. Um, Patrick is a patron of the ACCI, a long-established black mental health charity in Wolverhampton and patron of Sante, a social enterprise in Camden which supports and befriends refugees and asylum seekers across London. Patrick is also vice chair of the Bernie Grant Trust and a board member of 38 Degrees. He received an OBE in 2012 for his work in race equality and health. He was, he was awarded an honorary PhD by Wolverhampton University in 2018 for his campaigning and writing on culture, history, and migration. In 2019, Patrick received the SMK Lifetime Achievement Award for campaigning. We have serious pedigree here today, ladies and gentlemen. Patrick, we warmly welcome you and look forward to what you have to share with us this evening. Hi, um, good evening everyone uh, online and it's really great to be invited by Church Together to talk about the Windrush scandal and about 20 minutes which I'll explain the Windrush scandal, why I got involved, what's happening now 
uh, and maybe how you can get involved as well. So a little bit about me, obviously Royce has given me a nice bio, thank you very much for that. Uh, my, uh, I was born in Wolverhampton, uh, which is important. Uh, I was, um, it was really fantastic because in 2018 the university gave me a, on, on a degree uh, for my work. Um, but my parents, um, they came from Jamaica, part of the British generation. Um, um, they came to Wolverhampton in the late 1950s and they raised me and my four sisters. My parents, touch wood, are still alive. They're in their late 80s. They're shielding or post-shielding. I don't know what, what, what situation around COVID-19 now is, but they're still going strong. Um, but what's happened in Wolverhampton, like other parts of the country, a lot of the Windrush generation have died you know, for many years, but particularly in Wolverhampton and in, in the Black country in the West Midlands, there's been a high proportion of Windrush generation and people in the churches in Wolverhampton have been about four pastors that have died of COVID-19 in the last few months as well. And I think this is important because I think the Windrush scandal is really about the current inequalities that we face in society um, as well. So I grew up in Wolverhampton uh, and actually I grew up in the church um, uh, sort of, uh, so basically the Black-led church movement. And ironically, um, the first established church, Black-led church, Black Majority Church in Britain, was established in Wolverhampton by Reverend Oliver Lysite in 1953 and I think it's quite significant of that because many years later about five years ago um, I worked with the Lysite family in the New Testament Church of God and the Wolverhampton Civil Society and we've got a blue plaque to recognise his achievement and the question is how many blue plaques are there of black church leaders in Britain who have passed on their ancestors or the heaven and maybe that's something that you may want to think about, about recognising that history of people working in the mainstream churches as well as the black majority churches as well. So that was my background in many ways, and that's informed me of my, my work around campaigning, social justice, uh, etc. And uh, how I got involved in the women's scandal is, wasn't because of the scandal itself. For many years I've been campaigning for a National Windrush Day. And the reason why I thought this was important was um, I've, you know, I've, I've been able to capture my parents' oral histories. So I've filmed, I've, over the years, I've filmed them, interviewed my parents. Uh, so for prosperity's sake, for the family, that's, you know, that's important. Secondly, I've been involved in a number of historical research projects and community projects around the black history of the black community. Um, uh, and I did. A, I launched my website in 2002, which is still going. It's one of the longest established black history websites in the UK. Uh, and the reason why I launched that website, because at the time I was working for the NHS as a senior director, and I wanted to bring put something back in the community. And I was mentoring you know, lots of young black boys, 10-year-olds, 14-year-olds, people lost their jobs, young people. And one of the key things I noticed was that there was a lack of acknowledgement or understanding of our history in Britain. Didn't, didn't know much about the history in the Caribbean or Africa and I didn't know much much about the history in Britain. So I launched, I had this personal quest whilst I was working as senior director in NHS to try and do something different around history. I had a passion for culture, for black history. I never went to university to study history. I studied law instead actually. But I had this passion for history 
and so I developed this website and then a year later I developed another website called 100 Great Black Britons which was about celebrating 2,000 years of black presence in Britain and I did that website because the, the BBC at the time when I did the 100 Great Britons campaign did not have one black person or any Asian person or of colour uh, in their campaign when they were celebrating British achievements. Not a lie. They had Freddie Mercury, uh, who was the lead singer of Queen. Um, but if you looked at Freddie Mercury, you wouldn't think he was white anyway, but he was actually of Persian heritage, Farsi heritage, and he was born in Zanzibar. But apart from Freddie Mercury, that was it. There was no person of colour on that list. So I did the counter campaign, which went ballistic, which was, was quite successful. And that led to the public voting for Mary Seacole, as the greatest black Britain in 2004, that led to uh, a number of black nurses to raise money for the Mormon statue, which was unveiled about four years ago, which was fantastic in the grounds at Thomas Hospital. But also um, that led that led to the you know start a whole campaign to recognise that black British history was important. Mary Sickle was included in national curriculum for the first time, along with um, Equiano, a lot Equiano, um, and so I've always that has been my background leading to Windrush Scandal. I had a good understanding of Black British history, the history of the Caribbean, um, the history of enslavement. And for many years, I would travel to Africa just to learn the history of Africa. I've been to West Africa, East Africa, just learn about the history to, uh, and grounding myself and then using that experience to do loads of workshops on family genealogy, family workshops. I published a book written by Robin Walker when we ruled which was quite important, a, grand, a seminal book in many ways about African civilization prior to slave trade. So I was immersed in all the different histories of our lived experiences going back thousands of years. And through this process, over the lens look at that, look at the black experience in Britain, there was hardly any acknowledgement of my parents' generation, the Winners' generation. I befriended the elder in Hackney, I live in Hackney, uh, a friend of the elder called Eddie Martin Noble. He'd wrote, he wrote a book about his life in 1984 called um, Jamaican Airmen, published by New Beacon Books. And in his book, he talked about the colour bar, the racism, the experience of discrimination he faced when he volunteered for the RAF in 1943, and the experience of the colour bar in Britain in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, to the time of his, uh, till about his life in general. And I got to know Eddie. We were, in many ways, we had a bond. Um, he had two daughters, but he never had a son. He adopted me like a son, and I never didn't know. I didn't really know much of my grandparents because I lived in Jamaica, and most of them had passed away by the time I, I did go to Jamaica to see them. So we had this special bond. And through this special bond, uh, and I think he went, what church did he go to? He was, he was actually a Christian. He was, very, he was active Christian as well. I think he might have gone through a Baptist. I think Baptist church, and um, we got to know each other really well shared me his life stories. And I said to him one day, Eddie, you've got this fantastic historian. He was born, by the way, in 1917 on Valentine's Day. And, um, and, he was, and he told me about the history of Jamaica from a really lived experience of colonial Jamaica in the 1920s and 30s and 40s before he came over to serve in the RAF, uh, which is quite important to have to understand what Jamaica was like, what the Caribbean was like under colonial rule, uh, basically. And there was a clear racial divide, colour skin, complex divide, class divide, uh, and all that stuff that was there, which in many ways is still, it's still there in Caribbean society, to be quite honest. Uh, and um, anyway, so interviewed Eddie, 
and, and, and fantastic these lived experiences. Uh, he passed away uh, in 2007 at the age of 90, died of cancer. Family asked me to do a eulogy at his funeral. And I realized I had all, I had all, I'd interviewed him. I've got, um, I've got lots of film footage about his life. And I decided to make a documentary in 2008. In 2008, it was 60th anniversary of the, um, of the, uh, of the Windrush, Empire Windrush Filbury. 10 years before that, in, in 1998, that's when the, the Windrush Foundation was established by Arthur Torrington and the late Sam King, who was a passenger then on the Windrush and also served in the, in the RAF during the Second World War. They established the Windrush Foundation to promote the history of the Windrush generation and particularly the loose lives of the people that were on the Windrush ship. And they, did a, they worked with the BBC, they worked with Mike and Trevor Phillips, they produced this four-part TV series about the Windrush uh, and there's a book that came out of that. But in 2008, by the way, there was no recognition, no TV announcement, nothing at all about acknowledging the Windrush generation. And uh, I did my documentary about Eddie's life, A Charm Life, which went very well, did lots of film screenings around the country and also abroad. And then I was asked by The Guardian um, to have a clip of the film on their website. And asked, they also asked me to write um, a, an article about his life. But I, what I did instead, I wrote an article about Windrush. I said, and I wrote this article around about 2009, about 2010. The article's still online, by the way. And I said in my article that in America, we celebrate um, Martin Luther King Day. Uh, they, in America, they have like the Statue of Liberty, which, which is about symbolism around, uh, uh, around migration and America. What do we have in Britain to celebrate the women's generation? What, what do we have in Britain to celebrate multicultural Britain? What do we have in Britain to celebrate migration? And the answer is not much, not very little. And I said in my article, why can't we have a national day, actually a, 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 even a public holiday called Windrush Day, celebrating the contribution of the Windrush generation to Britain and also to use the opportunity to celebrate all migrants who've come to Britain since the Second World War. I wrote this article and, um, and, um, and actually I got approached by a number of people and a lot of people, um, particularly, um, uh, connected with the churches and the Baptist, uh, London Baptist Church, one of their members approached me and um, basically said, um, this is what, you, what you're saying perhaps is fantastic. Let's work together and see if it's a reality. And then from about 2010, 11, every year we would have meetings. We would, we would invite different church leaders. We would go down to Wondrous Square in Brixton um, to acknowledge the women's generation and to recognise multicultural Britain. And at the same time, as part of the campaign, which I played a key role in, we, you know, we tried to lobby and engage with MPs. We had letters in the, in the Times to, to doing that. We had with the early day motion and with a couple of uh, petitions trying to generate interest around Windrush Day. So that was my, in, uh, my involvement. And then 2018, when the Windrush Camp scandal broke, that's when, when, that's when people started to take seriously Windrush Day. Prior to then, none of the political parties were interested about Windrush Day, to be quite honest, because I approached all of them. They weren't interested at all, basically. I mean, some MP said to me, Patrick, it's a nice idea, but it never happened at all. That was, you know, but I was determined uh, as well. In 2018, um, in terms of the Windrush scandal itself, the Windrush scandal 
is on different, it's had different components. Um, the, the heart of the Windrush scandal was that uh, in 1948, there was a British Nationality Act that was created. And that act basically meant that anyone from the colonies could come to Britain. This is prior to independence for many countries in Africa and the Caribbean. By then, India and Pakistan already had their independence. But, um, but definitely for black countries uh, and other countries, um, you could come to Britain as a British citizen because that, the act extended across the whole of the empire. Uh, and people could come here uh, and they could work here, they could vote, they could register to vote and be treated no differently to any white person in the UK. That was the Nationality Act. The act actually wasn't intended for us. The act was actually intended to attract people from Australia and New Zealand uh, and South Africa to come to Britain, white people, uh, the Dominions countries, because they needed a shortage of labour and because of, the war, because of the Second World War, it had a massive impact on cities and manufacturing and the source of labour. But actually what happened was, a lot of Caribbean people took the advantage of saying, we're going to come over here. And, so, and, so, and a lot of people from Africa and a lot of people from different parts of the world came during that period. And because, and then the children that came with their parents between the late 40s up to 1973, didn't need to have passports, the children on the women's generation. So these are minors under 16 who came on their parents' or uncles' passports. And they, when they arrived here, they didn't need to have any additional identity, identification. They would naturally assume they were British because of that particular legislation. Then when you roll the clock forward, um, then you obviously, Enoch Powell in 1968, he made his speech, Rivers of Blood. And his speech, in many ways, created set the template for immigration policy, even today. And then even if we speak today, the current government are still insistent on using a hostile environment policy, which is based on fear and intimidation to discriminate against people of colour uh, regarding their, their status in Britain. Uh, so, and that is because of Enoch Powell's speech of the Rivers of Blood. Ironically, Enoch Powell was MP of Wolverhampton. My parents came to Wolverhampton. And another twist of the tale, he actually opened my junior school when I was about six years old uh, in Wolverhampton. Still got the scars, well not scars, but but maybe that's the reason why I'm still doing this. I'm doing this stuff. Didn't know at the time what he was, what, what he was an individual. But when I found out later on, then maybe that's the extra reason for doing what I'm doing. Um, and and then in 2014, the government created a hostile environment policy through the immigration bill, which meant that anyone had to have a passport or some form of uh, or um, or proof of indefinite leave to stay. Um, to access, to confirm or to access job opportunities, open bank accounts, anything in, anything that we do normally in Britain, you had to have this proof of identity that you were British. But the twist in this was actually how many white people were at their passports or proof of identity? Probably not many. But how many people of colour were asked for proof of identity in terms of their jobs? Or access to benefits or access to their state pensions and, and that was a lot of us and, and the reason why the scandal happened was that the children of the women's generation that came to Britain particularly during the 60s particularly in 70s didn't have any passport didn't have a proof of identity when they arrived in Britain 
most of them came by plane. Um, and a lot of them actually didn't travel. Uh, didn't get passports. Not, not all of them got passports. If they didn't have a passport, it might have expired. Uh, and because they didn't have a passport, they were deemed to be illegal immigrants, despite the fact that they were British in the first place. And that's led to a lot of people being deported. And I think the hostile environment happened even before the 2014 Immigration Act, because um, Wendy Williams, um, who did, has done the review on the Windrush scandal, and actually one of the key things I'd like to recommend anyone is to get a copy of her report, uh, Lessons Let Review. You can actually download it off the Home Office website or do a Google search and to read this because I think um, the report itself gives a historical analysis of the Windrush scandal and in her recommendation she talks about that this was, this was avoidable because, uh, but the government ignored the advice of Caribbean leaders, they ignored the advice of lawyers and uh, charities and organisations that have been lobbying around the history of migration rights for many years. The government completely ignored that because they had targets. Their targets because they wanted to get the, the net migration figure down and the one way of doing that was to try and deport as many people from Britain. And how many of those, how many of you can remember vans driving around Britain, those, those vans saying, go home. Those vans were indiscriminate. They were targeting all of anyone, they didn't care. You know, I remember seeing those vans driving around Hackney. And also, I remember taking a picture of it and, and I tweeted about it about a couple of years ago, about four years ago. And these vans were there to create fear and intimidation. By, if you, haven't, if you couldn't have, if you couldn't prove that you're British, then the fear was that you'd be deported. And the intimidation was that if you felt you weren't British, just leave anyway. And that is a hostile environment in a nutshell. And that hostile environment still exists even today, despite the fact the Windrush scandal, despite the, all, the, all the apologies done by the government. How I got in aspect of the Windrush scandal was because uh, I used to be a councillor in Hackney. I was a councillor for about eight years. And so obviously there's a councillor who do lots of stuff from representing people, advocacy. I stopped being a councillor about five, six years ago, but still, people still approach me for uh, doing work in the community around helping their assistance and advice. I got approached by one particular individual who was threatened with deportation. And when I read all his paperwork, I'm not, by the way, I'm not an immigration lawyer. I mean, I studied law, but I know I'm not an immigration lawyer. But when I studied his paperwork, and also at the same time, a military gentleman in The Guardian was writing a whole range of cases and articles uh, our individuals who were caught up in this around about November 2017, right up to about, you know, well, even now she's still doing it, even now she's still doing that. But um, I, I was approached by one particular individual called Iwaldo uh, Romeo. Um, actually, his younger brother was Jazzy B from Soul to Soul. And, but uh, we didn't want to disclose that fact because it'd be all about him, his brother, not about uh, Iwaldo and about his immigration situation. And, and so he approached me, I looked at his paperwork, and I read all the articles that Amina had, had written. I actually contacted Amina, and I realised that all these articles that she wrote about people losing their jobs, people not accessing cancer treatment, people being deported, not allowed to come back into Britain, the commonality, and it was affecting disproportionately a lot of Caribbean people, as well as a lot of people from Africa. And I recognised that this one wasn't an individual act because at the time the Home Office was saying that um, 
these people, you know, oh, it's just just administration problems. And actually, in the community, I remember even on Twitter, and I'm, I'm talking to lots of people. There are a lot of people in the community saying, "Oh, these people, these Windrush people, they've messed up. They've not sorted out paperwork." I'm all right, Jack. I sorted out my paperwork when it came to 91, 81, and 88 Immigration Act. I'm all right. And these people, they can't read, they can't write. And, we, and actually, we were quite dismissive of what was happening in the early days of how these people were experiencing. Because people thought, well, it's just in the overstayers type scenario. But they weren't overstayers. They were already British citizens. So when I did some more research work, I recognised that these were British people of Caribbean heritage, African heritage, um, all linked to the hint certain that, that historic moment of Windrush generation where people were invited or, you know, I mean, you can define what invited means, but basically through the legislation of the 1948 Immigration Act, they came here, not as economic migrants, they came here as British citizens. And that's a fundamental difference. And their rights and their, their rights as British citizens were taken away, basically. So when I recognised that there was a connection between this, I thought this was almost like a class action against black people. And that's why I launched my petition in March 2018. Uh, um, and I used Iwaldo as a case study to demonstrate that this was clear case discrimination and had to be, and I used the word uh, amnesty deliberately because uh, amnesty, uh, even though there were British already, amnesty evokes an emotional response. If I said, we want to, uh, in my petition, with people signed, if I said in my petition, we want to regularize the status of people who are really British, then people would have said, well, people, no one would have understood it, and they wouldn't have that emotional impact. And that's, I mean, I'm a campaigner, and if any of you are involved in doing campaigns or developing a campaign at a local level or national level through your work, you have to make it simple. You've got to create a narrative which people could identify with. And I created a narrative that these were the children of the women's generation <clears throat> that worked hard, paid their taxes, raised families, and now they were and they were British and they were denied their status as British and it was a human rights issue. And that led to a massive chain reaction. That led to a lot of people retweeting, a lot of black celebrities were retweeting my tweets, lots of MPs were retweeting my tweets, particularly David Lamy. Uh, and then when I got 100,000 signatures on my petition, uh, which I did on the UK government UK website, that would automatically generate a debate in Parliament. But before the debate happened in Parliament, my actual debate because of my petition, that led to that gave the permission for lots of MPs to raise issues in Parliament. And between the period of April 2018 to July 2018, every single day, the word hostile environment, windrush generation. Windrush scandal was trending on Twitter and Instagram for the whole four months. When I was doing my campaign for many years for Windrush Day, I, I prayed and wanted that to happen for Windrush Day, but it never happened. But it happened because of the scandal. And when the media got involved, and all the media did stories highlighting the scandal, you know, and it was one of these few moments, if we look back in history, um, like for almost like very similar to what happened to the murder of Stephen Lawrence, it's one of these moments in history where, irrespective of if you were black, white, irrespective if you were a hardcore Brexiteer or a hardcore communist, everyone understood the message of how the Windrush generation were treated by the government. And it was universal. It was almost like a no-brainer. I can remember getting messages from even UKIP supporters saying, we support the Windrush generation. 
uh, it's unbelievable. But it was one that, and that, and the government didn't didn't number one uh, appreciate that, and they were completely wrong-footed. They did not expect that the Great British public would support one of the few issues, one of the most toxic issues in Britain when it comes to immigration, nationality. You know, all opinion polls, and even now, a lot of opinion polls say that immigration is number one, it is the number one issue, and that's why we're leaving Europe, basically. But for that brief moment of time, a lot of people supported the campaign for the Women's Generation and supported the idea of amnesty. And that's the reason why the government, even today, still apologises when they mess up. When they treat, when there's a story about when this person being treated badly, or the compensation scheme not working effectively, they keep apologising. But how many apologies do we want? We want action. Two years on, what has happened? Two years on. Well, on a positive note, over twelve thousand people have had their status regularised in Britain. But ironically, only about ten days ago, um, Dominic Rubb, the Foreign Secretary said that people in Hong Kong will have automatic status. Three million people in Hong Kong will have automatic status. But yet, why is it that people of the women's generation and their children have to go for the degradation of going to the Home Office to still prove that they're British when people from Hong Kong, just like that, can have their status just like that? There is something fundamentally wrong here. I'm not decrying what's happening in China and people of Hong Kong. But why the government could have done that. The window scandal could have ended two years ago if the government had given automatic status to all the Windrushers, just like that. There are still thousands of people who have not come forward to sort out their status because they don't trust the Home Office. The government have got deportation flights around the charter flights. I mean, there have been quite a few deep to, uh, charter flights over the last couple of years. And on top of that, the compensation scheme that's been developed by the government uh, which claim is on the basis of righting the wrongs, is based on the fault-based system. People still have to prove that they lost economically, emotionally, financially. Uh, and the burden of proof is used in a criminal investigation, beyond reasonable, in criminal court, beyond reasonable doubt, which is ridiculous, which means that the government doesn't, is not serious about tackling the Windrush scandal. So in 2020, as we speak, the Windrush scandal still happens. People are still threatened with deportation. People are stuck in detention centres, uh, not knowing if they're going to be deported or not. Thousands of people have not come forward to sort out the status because they don't trust the Home Office. Only The government has only given out £1 million in compensation in the last 18 months, and the average claim is less than 5000 whereas most people have lost their livelihood for less than 10 years plus, lost their homes, lost everything. And yet they've been given, more people will get compensation on the Thomas Cook for losing their holiday than the Windrush generation. So these wow. issues are still ongoing. Only two weeks ago, I presented a petition with, with five high-profile Windrushers. Anthony Bryant, where, and, the, and you know, the BBC made, drama, BBC made a drama about his life called Simpson Limbo. Um, he came to, we, came to number 10. Paulette Wilson, who had two cells two spells of detention in Youngswood Detention Centre. Um, uh, Walder Romeo came, Glenda Caesar from Hackney came, who had worked for the NHS for many years, lost her job because she couldn't prove that she was British. Michael Breathwaite, a teaching assistant from East Islington, lost his job, even though he'd been in the same job for, for many years, couldn't prove that he was British. We all presented our petition, 150,000 signatures signed our petition, demanding that this report, the lesson of the report 
done by Williams to be fully implemented because the government had been sitting on this report for the last four or five months. And Priti Patel, a few days later, announced that she would implement that. Uh, what I've heard today, uh, she made an announcement today that she's still considering what aspects of the recommendations to implement. She's appointed people to sit on this cross-government review to implement the lessons that are review. And there are some people safe in that, on that review, which is great. But with all due respect, none of them have not been involved in the Windrush scandal. None of them have been campaigning for the Windrush scandal. And actually, some of them believe that the Windrush scandal was a fault of the Windrushes themselves. So I don't know how effective that review is going to do be anyway. And also, people don't believe in structural racism. And the Windrush scandal is about structural racism. The Windrush scandal was deliberately engineered to discriminate against people of colour, had a disproportionate impact on black people particularly. It's still happening and it's no different. And that's the reason why the whole issue around Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 is quite critical and quite important. All these are interrelated and we need to fight structural racism and discrimination. This is the job that you need to do as people of faith. faith people of faith to fight for social justice. This, uh, some of you are involved in that and that's fantastic, but we all need to raise our game to fight for social justice, support the victims of the winner scandal, support people being impacted on COVID-19, and to fight and to recognise about Black Lives Matter and why the issues around structural racism uh, in Britain. I think I've gone over 20 minutes, so I'll stop there. Wow. Thank you so much, Patrick. You've given us so much to think about. And um, please do, if you haven't submitted a question, please do so. We've already had a number of questions. Um, so if you don't mind, Patrick, I'll start bombarding you. Sure. In the, we've, we have had a couple of questions with regarding, um, uh, to do with the compensation and action what can what what people can do and we have a really a question from Derek Morgan hello Derek thank you for joining us and his question is very direct what can the churches do it's interesting um the churches can, can do a lot of stuff uh so even now uh, a lot of people uh don't have confidence in coming forward to sort out their status there have been a number of organisations around the country. So in London, you've had Black Culture Archives. In Nottingham, you've got Clive Foster from Pilgrim Church in Nottingham. You've got Desmond Jago, um, Reverend Desmond Jago in Birmingham. And there are a number of faith leaders organising surgeries, working with lawyers who, are, who give pro bono free advice, and they're using their church facilities for people to come down and to either get advice around their legal status in Britain or assistance around the compensation, completing the compensation forms. But I do, if there's opportunity for faith leaders to approach their local um, you know, lawyer, uh, law firm or, 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 or lawyers that are happy to work and engage or advice, advice workers or case workers to do surgeries um, that's one thing, because one of the things that I know, a lot of the people that got caught in the winter scandal, they're all churchgoers, they're all Christians, and, and ironically, at the time, not the church didn't come forward. I was a bit disappointed. If you want one spin, I was a bit disappointed. The church didn't come forward. And if you compare this to America, it'd be a different ball game. 
the church would be out there doing stuff. Mm. But the churches have been too quiet on this particular issue. As a general, not all, not, I mean, there have been some uh, fantastic church advocates and leaders, but generally speaking, the church has not raised its game on this particular issue with a majority of their members and the children of their, of their con of congregations have been caught up in a scandal. And why do you think that is? Do you think that's something to do with um, uh, black majority churches on the whole being discouraged from getting involved in, in matters of politics? Or do you think it's something else? It's, I mean, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I'm sure you have these debates already. Uh, I've had this. I've had conversation with Richard over the years uh, regarding this. It's difficult because I mean, yeah, it might be, but it might. It is political. I mean, you can't avoid it. If you've been told by the government that we're going to deport you because we don't believe that you're British, but you are, it's political. Mm. It's only when you challenge the government and the government messes, then the government realizes that they've they've gone over the line. That that's when you know, and that's what I've been doing. I mean, you know, you know, it's about being an activist and campaigner. Christ was activist and campaigner, wasn't he? That's what I was taught when I went to church Sunday school. He was a campaigner, he was an activist. He mm. spoke out, uh, on, 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 ultimately paid the price. And I think sometimes we, you know, we want the easy life. We want, you know, we don't want to kind of push the boat too much. Mm. But you know, we've got this is hostile. The hostile environment. It's based on if you if you watch any film around the mafia, like you know any Marcos Gazin film, the mafia operates for some of the home office. It's based on fear and intimidation, and that's what the, that's what the government policy was at the time and still is. It's fear that you you know and intimidation, and we have to challenge that. It's not right. It's ungodly. It's it's not right. It's ironic because Theresa May, who's a practicing Christian. Um, that was her, she sanctioned that policy. She's, I mean, on reflection now, she's, you know, now she's out of office. She's now speaking up about it again. So it's, it's interesting about how politicians are uh, mm. as well. Uh, so I think the church could do more. One thing you can do is uh, I've got a petition. I'm happy to share the link. Uh, I've got a current petition about the Women's Compensation Scheme. So the Women's Compensation Scheme was launched April 2019. The whole idea of the scheme, in theory, was to to cover the, all the losses of anyone who was caught up in a winner scandal, yeah. basically, and um, that was that was and the point is Martin Martin Ford QC Black Barrister, who helped to recommend the divide scheme, uh, which is fine, and um, and I was very positive about that at the time. I'm now less positive because the way that the Home Office, number one, the Home Office should not be managing the compensation scheme. Mm -hmm. Because Home Office currently, and it's in the same directorate, believe it or not, where they do deportation flights. It's the same directorate that oversees the de detention centres. And yet, at the same time, they are meant to manage a scheme to be empathetic to the victim of the scandal. It doesn't stack up. It's a conflict of interest. And that scheme should be managed arm's length outside of the Home Office because it's, it, you know, and it's not working anyway. Because, so my petition, which is on 38 degrees, and I'm, I'll share the link, which 55,000 people have signed it so far, is demanding that the compensation scheme is moved out of the Home Office to an independent agency because the scheme is not working. 
if you speak to any of the victims of the scandal, the way that they have to complete sending information, it was bad enough already in the first place that they have to submit lots of paperwork to demonstrate they were British. They're doing the same thing again to get compensation. It's almost like they've been treated as benefit scroungers. Mm. And they were in the wrong. It was the government that was in the wrong. And if you're using the principles of restorative justice, the government should say, we messed up. We will make it easy for you to, to pay you for what we've done to you. Because mm. we messed your life up. And on top of that, some of you have died. Five people, by the way, five people have died in the UK. And even today, the estates have not been paid anything at all. It's outrageous. If this is any other community, it'd be like World War. Why are we being treated with so disrespect and degradation? Um, so it'd be really fantastic if people could sign a petition. And if you want to join, if we get 100,000 signatures, it'd be fantastic if you could all join me and we could take it down to number 10. Brilliant. Okay, that, that, that's the call out there, people. Get, get onto that, um, that petition and get your walking shoes on and take a stroll down to number 10 Downing Street. I'm sure you'd be warmly welcomed. Uh, there's, uh, we have a number of questions here, um, all anonymous, but around this whole issue of the compensation and deportation. Um, like how many people, do we know how many people were deported? Um, and how many people on the whole were caught up in the Windrush scandal? And um, yeah, I suppose that's that's quite that. There's a there was another one earlier on here, and where is it? And we said, bear with me. Right. So you know, it was a question. Well, I think you've answered this one. Have the Windrush generation been properly compensated? I think that's a resounding. Uh -uh. Um, but but also you know how many people have been deported and how many people are still struggling with this process do we have those figures at all the answer is we don't know that's a problem right. so in the early days of the winner scandal um the government did try to did bring back some people from the back from the caribbean and about a couple of people to pay for their ticket brought them back but and but that was I think it was more of a PR stunt because it was, again, because the government was on the back foot, it was, it was like embarrassment. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they had to do something, mm -hmm. but, um, but they've not brought anyone back from Africa. More people, a lot of people have been deported, a lot of people, a lot of people, Sierra Leone, Nigeria and Ghana. Wow. And, and there are a lot of Africans who have been treated the same way as Caribbean people. And there've been no attempts or effort at all to even bring them back or even make the effort to say you're entitled to compensation. I think it's, it's outrageous. It's actually quite scandalous. And that's my petition as well, that there should be, there should be the government, the foreign office and the home office should be working with NGOs in Africa to identify people who have been deported and to support them to come back to Britain or to give them compensation. Nothing has been done at all in that respect, at least in the Caribbean, because there's been a lot of noise. And I think that's because the Caribbean community have been putting pressure anyway on Caribbean uh, ambassadors to do something. Mm. What was happening in the community, the African, the African, the Nigerian, Ghanaian, Sri Lankan community? Are they talking to their high commissioners or ambassadors? What's happened with the governments there? They're not doing it. They're not putting pressure on the Home Office or the Foreign Office. So therefore, mm. nothing happens. Mm. So again, this is quite important. I think I, you know we don't. We don't. The only thing that we do know 
is in the last two, 18 months, there have been two deep charter flights where the, the, they have deported just, on, just under 60 people back to Jamaica. And I was in Jamaica over a year ago and I met some of the victims, some of those guys that were deported on the first charter flight. And, and, if, and when you are deported, it's, it works on the basis that you're deported because you're not a British citizen and therefore, as far as they're concerned, you're stateless. And when you go to Jamaica or whatever, you don't have to register to be a Jamaican citizen, believe it or not, uh, before you can get anything. And also there is a stigma also. So people see you coming from the West. They perceive you've, you've messed up your life. Now you want to come here to our country. There's not much sympathy, ironically and sadly, for people who are deportees. The case of people being murdered, uh, and a lot of them are, a lot of the deportees can't get jobs because they have a criminal record. The very fact that you might be deported is seen as a criminal record, and therefore, when you can't get a job, and if you say I've been, a, I'm a deportee, you're like pariah. They don't want to touch you at all, and the government has not provided any support or assistance whatsoever. It's outrageous. It really is outrageous, and we're not fighting hard enough. At least in some countries they've refused these deportation flights. And, you know, so that's, a, that's an issue itself. Uh, in terms of going back to the point around the compensation scheme, the compensation scheme is not just simply for victims of the women's scandal. I believe, and it's not, it's not written down, I've been campaigning for this, that when we had the 1981 Immigration Act, and I can remember this very well because my parents, they got naturalised, uh, and you know, because they were told by the government if you did not naturalise, you might get, you might be threatened with deportation. So, you know, so my parents naturalised. You know, hundreds of thousands of Caribbean people, African people, naturalised. That was that was wrong. We should never, we should have not got naturalised in the first place, because they were already British. But we were told that we weren't British, so people paid their money. And I think people should get compensation for register for plan for naturalisation back in the 1980s. That's my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. If you were to compare it to, I mean, okay, it's not on the same scale as the Holocaust, but if you were to compare it around reparations or restorative justice, the principles about righting the wrongs, the government should be giving money to the victims of the winner scandal and their children without saying, I'll say, here's a fixed amount of money that we will give you. And like I've suggested that everyone should get a minimum of £10,000 minimum, and they could claim additional for compensation. They should be given. They should be fund. They should be looking at the black community in the UK as part of this restorative justice, because mm. the impact of the Willow scandal has traumatised all of us. Mm. The question that the question that we all say to ourselves: Are we really British? Do they really want us? Are we really valued? That is the impact of hostile environment. It's had an impact on all of us, not just simply just the victims who've been threatened with deportation. It has an impact on on that, and that's why the whole stuff around Black Lives Matter is important. Mm. Windrush Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and, that, and that's really important as well. And I think the final thing to add to that is that mental, it has an impact on people's mental health. My background is health and social care. A, lot, a majority of the victims of Windrush scams are traumatised. They're mm. experiencing post-traumatic stress. The NHS are not geared up to, there's no offers to help them around counselling, nothing at all. It's just, it's just outrageous. It's almost like we've been left hung, hung dry. Mm. Thank you for that, Patrick. That's really powerful. Um, in addition to the petition, is there a, um, a letter that people can write 
um, to bombard their local MP with um, to keep the matter live? That was a question given by an anonymous attendee. I think there've been there've been, there've been a number of organisations that have drafted various letters. Uh, currently, the Equality Human Rights Commission they are challenging the government on hostile environment, and they have launched um, a survey to get people's views and opinions. So, if you go into the Equality Human the Equality Human Rights Commission's website, you can see information about their plans to challenge government on the, on the hostile environment. That was one of the recommendations that was made by Wendy Williams in Lesson Learned Review, that there has to be a review of the hostile environment policy. Mm. And I, so I, I think making submissions to the Equality Human Rights Commission to say, to support in the context of the women's scandal and hostile environment was important. Mm. Um, and, and I think just contact your MP anyway. Uh, just contact your MP and say, either go to their surgeries or, or drop them an email and to say, how, what are you doing to advocate and to represent the victims of the scandal? Basically, mm. Mm. What, or even better, you could just do you could just you could do a Google search on Hansard and see what the what they've said in Parliament or done. But I think you should contact your local MP. Mm. I mean, I mean, I think that the compensation scheme is really really critical. We need we need to get that right. And I'm, I'm not quite sure whether um, if I if I give the link to yourself or Richard afterwards. And then you can share that with everyone uh, uh, if that's easier. Or mm -hmm. I mean, I could do the link. I can share the link now. It's a bit easier. I'm going to. That 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 would be great if we if you could share the link. That would be great. We can do both hands. Share yeah. the link and and put it someplace where people can have access to it. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. And also, there's lots of organisations campaigning generally for years on hostile environments. So there's a mm -hmm. joint council welfare for immigrants. Migrant Rights Network, Praxis, a whole range of organisations. There's quite a few lawyers who work closely with Jacqueline McKenzie. She's a black solicitor based in Spetham, and she's been supporting lots of victims. Uh, black Culture Archives, I'm working with the Black Culture Archives on a number of events around, and they've been organising surgeries for the last couple of years uh, as well. But I think churches could do that as well. Mm. You, it's, thank you for mentioning the Black Cultural Archives, because at the beginning of your talk, you you spoke um, quite passionately about the importance of knowing our multi-ethnic history and the contribution of people from Africa and the Caribbeans and, and um, East and South Asia. Um, why, clearly it is important, but could you share why you think it's particularly important in this British context? Uh, it's, it's very simple. Uh, we have contributed through blood, sweat and tears for 400 years, literally. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, and also, you know, I mean, I'm working, I've got a book coming out in uh, September, which I've written with a colleague, uh, Dr. Angela Osborne. It's called 100 Great, Black Brit 100 Great Black Britain. It's based on the website I did 17 years ago for 100 Great Black Britain, but we now it's going to be a book format, but it's updated with, and that book is celebrating literally 2,000 years of Black British history, of people who have um, contributed, made a difference uh, as Black people of African descent in Britain. And we've profiled, we'll be announcing uh, 100 people uh, who have made a difference uh, um, based updated the campaign that we did 17 years ago and you know and and the book itself is about and the reason why we've done that book is about that we have conscious Britain 
sometimes the way that we the way that the media portrays as if we're still scroungers and we're lucky to be here and we should be grateful oh no i don't think so we've influenced britain in so many ways and that's important it's important for us it's important for our children our grandchildren uh it's important for white people to understand that we are here we ain't going nowhere else this is our country so get used to it live with it um and i think thirdly and more importantly um it's about validation of our lived experiences really important we are you know the, the whole stuff around everyday racism that 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 it's like a cancer that attacks all of us, like people of colour, every mm. single day, undermining the whole stuff that undermines our confidence in our ability at work, at school, whatever it is. It's corrosive. And sometimes we have to say, you know what, we are proud of what we've achieved. Whatever it's big or small, that's important. It gives us our sanity. I've worked in mental health for many years. There is no coincidence why there's a massive overrepresentation of black people in mental health services. We are the lucky ones. Maybe we we're able to have the coping strategies to deal with everyday racism, but not everyone, not everyone can deal with that. And that's why there's a massive overrepresentation of us in the mental health system, because those people who've been caught in the mental health system have that, the cancer of racism and discrimination. Obviously, there's other factors as well which people have mental problems, but one of the key factors is the impact of racism discrimination. When I've worked in public health policy, we don't talk about that. We don't even talk about the impact of racism discrimination on the physiology of your body and on your mind. It's only recently because of COVID-19, there's now a bit of a debate about this issue around race structure, racism and COVID-19, how it's discriminating more and while well, it's more deaths, you know, but the impact of racism is important. So hold on to our history, be proud of who we are, keep the same. It really, it really, you know, it's like, it could be a matter of life and death. Wow, that's, that's, that's really, yeah, that's really, that's really important. Um, so your book is called 100... Great Black Britain, it's coming out in September, it's been published by Hachette. It's going to be a profitable book, so it's a good, it's a good filler for Black History Month and for Christmas. Well, no, it's yeah, great, great for Black History Month because I, because I, one of the things that I've noticed with Black History Month is that we tend to focus on a lot of American um, note, Black notables when we have, we have a treasure trove of history right here in this country. So that's something that folk, you know, teachers in the audience, uh, church leaders in the audience, um, community workers in the audience might be a great resource. Mm. doing something constructive in Black History Month that is distinctly British and about our contribution to this country. So that's, that's, that's brilliant. Um, as there, there, there are quite a number of... Um, all right, so, sorry, someone has asked if you, what, what the name of the book is. Can you repeat it again? Nice yeah, it's, it's, it's called 100 Great Black Britons. Right, and right. you can order it now. You can order it on Amazon. It's it's there. You can actually. It's quite cheap actually. Don't mind. <laughs> so not making any royalties yet. Anyway, but anyway, it's on Amazon. So you can order it. You can order it, and it's coming out in September, basically. It's been published by Hackett. Right. So a great Christmas gift for someone that you love, people. There you go. We do your Christmas shopping for you here as well. Um, before we round up, I'm very aware that there are so many um, 
There were so many threads to this story and, 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 it, and, they, and they trickle into so many aspects of our lives. Um, if somebody is not a, um, a campaigner, such as yourself, what are the other things that people can get in, can get involved with that is that actually serves to kind of pull the lever and move things on where they are in their own circumstances? Well, I think it's, I mean, there's lots of things people can do. I mean, you know, I mean, I suppose, you know, I'm, what I've done, I've, take, I've gone, yes, I'm a campaigner and I suppose I've dedicated a lot of my time doing that. So I'm not expecting everyone to do what I'm doing. It's a very lonely journey. Mm. It, it's very hard work and sometimes people don't appreciate what you do until they see the outcome of your efforts. Mm. So it is very hard, it's very lonely. Uh, but I think the simple things that people can do, just read upon your history, just do go to events there might be local community projects or events who are struggling can you help them raise money for them can you support them in different ways there's lots there's, there's, there is a fantastic amount of stuff happening in the community in your and you know just go out there and see what's happening and support people local causes there's loads and loads of courses uh, causes uh, out there or if you feel that's something that you feel strongly about then maybe you sound like i'm going to set my own campaign or initiative i mean i've been doing lots of workshops on camp how to be a campaigner maybe mm. a church together can commission me i'm very happy to run a workshop i have to be a campaigner mm. you know we have a really good question here from david forbes welcome david lovely to have you and he asks how can you deal with the phenomenon of black of backlash from white communities Oh, it's hard. I'm getting it now. So I'm from Wolverhampton, and uh, if people know the, the West Midlands or Wolverhampton, Wolverhampton, Dudley, Tipton, Sedgley, Walsall. It's, that's part of the Black Country. It's it's always seen itself as the heart of the Industrial Revolution. That's what we were taught at school. You know, um, you know, steam canal, steam steam engines, coal mining, smelting, ironworks, mm. and that kind of stuff. And um, about five years ago. Uh, some people, local people, launched a campaign called Black Country Day, celebrate the industrial heritage, working class history, industrial heritage. That's fine, nothing wrong with that. And they had a school competition and they got a young girl to design a logo, and in, but based on the design brief of the organisers. And at half this logo is a chain, chain motif. And I brought to the attention of the organisers that do you realise during the height of slavery, the black country with all your furnaces, you had the will monopoly on making fetters, handcuffs, neck chains, padlocks, all the chains that were that you see on slave ships and on plantations in America and the Caribbean were all made in the black country. And I said to them, that is insensitive. I didn't, I didn't use the R word. I said it was insensitive and not appropriate. It's almost like criminal swastika or Confederate flag. And guess what happened? I've got hate mail. I've got trolled on Twitter, the local newspaper wow. in, in Wolverhampton ran a campaign against me saying, how dare I raise this issue of race, of slave, you know, the black country flag's got nothing to do with the slave trade. I'm making it up. 
Uh, and actually, by the way, you've got OBE, you should apologise and give back your OBE. You don't deserve it, basically. I've got hate mail, I've got trolls on Twitter. They even ran, a, they even ran an opinion poll online to say, should Patrick Vernon come to back to Wolverhampton? I'm not joking. It, oh, was, wow. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was nasty and vicious. Wow. And because all I see, I, I, was, I was being very polite. I said, I was saying, do you realise that, that the slave trade financed the Industrial Revolution? And on top of that, you had guys in the West Midlands, the black country, these manufacturers making chains. And to make it matters worse, some of those chain manufacturers had plantations in the Caribbean. And to add insult to injury, they even got compensation in 1833. So I brought all this to, and I said to him, I'm not making it up, go into the archives, I've seen it. It's in the Wolverhampton archives, they've got records, they've got details there, but people don't want to listen to that stuff. Or they, they personalise it and they just, oh, you know, and, you know, and I said, I'm causing division. Uh, anyway, so every year in July, they have Black Country Day, and, and obviously my name always comes up, so I'll get hate mail. So this year, they had Black Country Day a few days ago, and, and what happened with the fire service in the West Midlands have decided not to use the flag. So I got so again. They say, "Oh, it's all my fault. It's all Patrick because oh, wow. because I should have kept them up." And 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 organisers said to me, "Patrick, they're not acknowledged that there's a link between the slave trade and chains, but they said that the work, but the working class people had a hard time working in the furnaces and factories. So you want to tell me? You trying to tell me that people who worked in the foundries have a harder time compared to all the millions that died in the Middle Passage that got enslaved in the plantations? They, their time was harder than our time." So this is a big issue around, I mean, the whole stuff around Black Lives Matter and the, and the removal of the statue has opened up this whole debate around what is history, what should we celebrate and what should go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so when you raise, your, when you raise these issues, you get attacked and, mm -hmm. and that scares a lot of people. I mean, Diane Abbott is the most hated woman on social media. There's a lot of research work has been done that she, um, about a third of all hate tweets are directed at her. Wow. It's, it's horrible. When you're a black person, a black man or woman, and you're raising these issues of race discrimination, you get the, the amount of hate mails unbelievable on social media and threat, the threat. I mean, Dawn Butler had to close her constituent office just last week because she was getting her staff were getting death threats and stuff like that. Mm. And this is the burden that we have to carry if we want to raise the issues. Thank you. Thank you, and, and sobering, sobering words, that this is a, a long journey and not an, an easy journey. And sadly, this part of the journey is at an end. Um, thank you for everyone who has participated. Thank you for those of you who have um, tuned in at the end of a, of, of a long day. Um, we have a lot to think about and hopefully this conversation will continue in your homes and in your churches and in with your work colleagues and members of your family. Uh, do sign a petition, find other ways of getting involved. Patrick has given us a, a, a list of things we could be getting on with. Um, but on behalf of CTBI and, and Baptist Union of Great Britain, um, Patrick, who just wants to say thank you so much for stimulating us and giving, challenging us and so that we know, have a better idea of what we need to be doing. And um, Rosemary Mallet said at the very beginning, before we started, 
just to let you know that we give thanks for your relentless work on behalf of the Caribbean community. And I'm sure people on this web page um, watching this and up and down the country would say a resounding amen. Thank you, Patrick, and God bless. Thanks very much. Thank you. Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons licence.